This is the ninth episode of Common Decency, and it's been a wild ride. We had listeners from 42 countries tune in, and we have so much positive feedback from everyone, and wanted to thank you for tuning in in such large numbers, and it made us think that we would love to give you a voice in our future episodes. All you have to do is to write a review in Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or whatever podcast platform you use. Send us that picture to our Twitter, at UndecencyPod, or to our email, UndecencyPod at gmail.com with your question attached, and we will answer it in a future episode. Now, for this episode in particular, we wanted to take the time out to walk our audience through a debate that has been raging in Brussels and across European capitals the past few weeks. And it's a debate that a lot of our listeners beyond Europe may find somewhat confusing at times, so we thought we would do a solo episode, no guest, just this week, to unpack some of the complexity of this debate. European strategic autonomy is goal number one for our generation. This is Charles Michel speaking, the president of the European Council, and he is talking about what is the big debate right now in Europe and in the United States, the idea of European strategic autonomy. Now, the idea is that the EU becomes an autonomous strategic actor in the world, uh, a geopolitical player, not just a geopolitical playing field. Now, once you've said that, once you've given that basic definition, you've only just entered the intellectual battlefield, that is, this debate about strategic autonomy, because it can mean radically different things to different people. Now, for example, for the Commission, autonomy is largely about green protectionism with a carbon levy on imports, for example. Some people have a more kind of expansionist understanding of strategic autonomy. For French President Emmanuel Macron, strategic autonomy or European sovereignty is a much bigger deal. He wants the EU to become a strong actor in a multipolar world, one that would be autonomous from the US and also from China, which means a more integrated EU, but also EU more capable of shaping the world. Now, this more integrated EU would be a stepping stone for having an EU which is capable of influencing world affairs. Um, Macron's vision includes the vision of a commission on some form of European protectionism, but it goes much further. He wants um, a form of common foreign policy, a common defence. And in many ways, this case for European sovereignty looks a lot like what you would see from French leaders, political leaders, 50, 40 years ago, you know, such as de Gaulle, except now the appropriate level for sovereignty for being able to weigh on the world is the European sphere, not just the national sphere. So in many ways, the case for sovereignty is one that is familiar to the French. Um, Now, the question is, can you have a European sovereignty without a European people or European demos? That is an open question. But the idea is the EU is now the critical um, level for having efficient sovereignty on the international um, sphere. Now, this case for autonomy was very strong when you had Donald Trump in the White House. You know, Donald Trump would repeatedly threaten to leave NATO. Um, He was rude, aggressive towards nearly all European leaders. 
Um, and so to some extent, Bayern's victory has taken away for the momentum behind strategic autonomy. Now that you have a much more polite um, uh, president. But Europeans on the back of their heads will now know that they're only 60, 100,000 votes away in Nevada and Pennsylvania from seeing Trump 2.0, you know, maybe a Trump which is more coherent and, and better and implementing his agenda. Now, of course, this Eurogolist argument is not a bestseller with everyone. You have a few people who deride it as, you know, uh, Macron's Napoleonic complex wanting to build a um, Napoleonic empire 2.0. And, uh, and to be perfectly fair, uh, even Charles de Gaulle saw the European community back in the days as France's attempt to reconstitute Napoleon's empire uh, decades later. And it was Howard Macmillan which told, um, who told um, de Gaulle that um, the European community looked a lot like Napoleon's empire. Um, so I think deep down in France, there's the idea that the European Union can be a lever for French, sorry, a lever for French influence in the world. Now, Macron also has a lot of skin in this game because if you look back at his 2017 campaign, his seven, usually politicians in France don't talk much about the EU. They don't feel they've got much to gain on it. Um, you had people criticizing it, people, uh, but you rarely had people opening support. And Macron was pretty obvious in his support for the EU and, and wanting for a uh, more integrated Europe. So essentially, his deal was he would offer to the French a Europeanization of France, make France more European, which meant modernizing the economy, reducing unemployment, reducing deficits. And once you've made France more European, you would then be able to make the case to make French, to make Europe more French, to make Europe a Euro-Gaullist uh, political actor. Um, so his attempts to make France more European started really well, but then you had the Gilets Jaunes, and now you have COVID. But even before the Gilets Jaunes and COVID, um, it, it, it started becoming apparent that not everyone in Europe were comfortable with this idea of, you know, Eurogolist idea of being strategically autonomous. Now, especially because you have, you know, smaller states... Um, a big thing about, about um, strategic autonomy is essentially a lot of the EU's competition com, um, anti-trust uh, regulation has stopped mergers between French and German companies, for example. And uh, in the EU, it wants to make sure there's um, a competitive economy. But you know, the French and the Germans will argue that without these uh, European champions, they're not able, able of shaping... Uh, the international market, you know, and they're being sidelined from um, from international markets by stronger American and Chinese companies. So this might sound good to the French and Germans, but smaller European companies, uh, sorry, sorry, smaller European countries with um, with smaller um, companies may be less comfortable with the idea of allowing Franco-German economic giants to crush competition. So you'll have you have some pushbacks from these smaller states, and then obviously, if you want to have this debate about strategic autonomy, you need to talk with Germany. Um, for a long time, Germany was uncomfortable with the idea of further European integration, which you know is the first step to being strategic autonomous in in, in Macron's vision. Germany had largely reaped the benefits of its membership in the EU, but it also knew that further integration meant potential potential fiscal transfers to countries. Um, and that was a major red line for German voters. And so in the past years, we saw how fragile the EU was, you know, especially when there was a five-star Lego government in Italy, 
And at this point, you have a kind of um, change in German policy, which is um, it was comfortable with with um, not changing the EU, but all of a sudden they realized that the EU cannot stay midstream as it is. And so progressively, it got slightly more comfortable with some of the French and maybe Italian ideas of having more transfers, of being more integrated. And if you look at the summer, for example, when there was the negotiations for the EU recovery fund, um, Germany ended up siding with French into pressuring the Dutch um, to accept more generous terms for the heavily indebted countries in the South. Um, While historically, you know, if we go back to the negotiations with Greece in in the 2010s, Germany would be much more closer to the um, frugal northern states. That said, on the issue of defence, you've seen some convergence between the German and the French. Both clearly want to bolster your defence, they want to spend more, and neither want to break ties with um, the United States and NATO. That, that case was, was, was true, whether it was Biden, whether it was Trump in, in the White House. Well, I think, listen, I think uh, I, I just wanted to, uh, to maybe add a couple of things. I think you've, you've, um, you've drawn here a very comprehensive picture. And I think towards the end, you were getting into one of the major uh, stories. And I, I think it's just so important to highlight that if you look at the um, uh, recent developments, if you look at where the conversation has, has been around maybe in the past 10 to 15 years in EU integration, EU-wide debates, um, we are now only now seeing this whole notion of strategic autonomy gain this central role, right? I mean, 10 years ago at EU council meetings, at commission, bureaucrats' offices, at, at the European Parliament, the debates would mostly be around the economy, the Eurozone, how to integrate economically, whether that be in terms of the single market or in terms of transfers, as you've uh, discussed. And only now are we uh, finally uh, discussing the very important issues of uh, defense, security, uh, the strategic role that we should be playing in the world on the world stage. And I think that's a very important point to highlight. And as you said, this new piece of the, the EU uh, conversation is helping shape all of the other ones. I mean, as you said, um, you know, the, um, the, the, the member state ambassadors in the EU are taking notes of where each other stand on these different issues. And that in turn informs where other debates will will have. I mean, as you said, one example being that on, on a question such as the um, financial integration of the EU, right, the mutualization of debts, the extent to which uh, the poorer member, member states can get to either um, borrow money, at, uh, whether or not we're going to have like euro bonds or whether these poorer member states are going to be able to um, uh, get some form of, um, of solidarity from the richer ones. But as you said, um, on that question alone, Germany has traveled some way towards more of a Mediterranean position, right, where we've seen it side with Macron instead of with the Dutch and the uh, and the Austrians, who are the kind of the frugals. Um, so that that would be um, that would be just a, a, a one observation. I think another one that you were also um, getting into that I think is so interesting is um, we really need to make absolutely clear that strategic and defense issues are only one um, aspect of strategic autonomy, or at least if we take Macron's definition of it. You were you were hinting at this earlier. I mean, def- um, a Europe that is more able to protect and defend itself through higher defense spending, through some form of, um, you know, cyber capabilities, the ability to deter cyber attacks, the ability as well to uh, have a more active uh, patrolling of the sea, sea, seas and waterways and whatnot. But 
you know, that, that's only the defense and security aspect. As you explained, Macron's vision is larger. He also wants Europe to be strategically autonomy, autonomous on the economic um, sphere. He wants Europe to be able to protect um, its, you know, some of its industries that wants it to uh, act tougher on Chinese abuses, on, on trade and investment. It, it wants generally Europe to be a bigger economic player on the world stage. That, that's like another huge pillar of his, of his vision. And then another point that I wanted to make, and I'll, I'll, I'll um, turn back to you with this, is that, um, in fact, you and I were discussing, uh, I believe last week, um, a, a piece of reporting that Politico came out with uh, shortly after Macron gave his uh, landmark interview to Le Grand Continent, which I think you were going to get into later and kind of walk us through what, what that was about. But shortly after that, that that, that interview was, was a major it was a bomb. I mean, it was widely shared and it really shaped the conversation for, for, uh, for, for the next few weeks. Then you had uh, Akaka uh, come out, come out with, with her own response that I believe she also published, ended up eventually publishing in Le Grand, Le Grand Continent. You were going to get into that as well. But the political piece reported this debate as being between what it called uh, the strategic autonomy camp on one side and the Atlanticists on the other. And you and I were discussing what a uh, what a funny way of looking at it uh, that is. I mean, I, I, it's just not a framework that I would um, buy into. I think, um, I think that that framework essentially focuses on the ends of on, on the the answers to the question of what role should the EU play on the world stage after all is said and done. Are we going to be a power that, in a way, um, is dependent on on American defense patronage and, and on def- on American strategic policies, right? Or are we going to be able to make our own policies and to act in, a, in an autonomous way? But there's a different way of looking at it, which is, I think the way that it's really playing out in European capitals is the main core debate that we're having now is, are we going Are we going to keep on track to uh, hit the NATO defense targets? I mean, are we going to keep building up our defense capabilities so that we, can, we are actually putting our, mo- our money where our mouths are? And showing to the Americans that we actually care about the transatlantic relationship. And once, and on, if you focus on that debate alone, the Germans are a, a tiny minority. Only Akaka and, Ger- and the Germans uh, are answering no to that question. Only they are saying that, listen, we can't really get these bills through Parliament. Uh, we, you know, we, there, there's not a real uh, clear case for us to be shifting troops around to the east, eastern flank. There's not such a clear case for, I mean, They've been the ones who've been, you know, beating around the bush and, and dragging their feet over the issue of defense spending. But the majority of European heads of state, the majority of European countries, and I would even submit that the majority of the European public holds a different view, which is that we should uh, be investing more in defense. But but within that, there's different um, objectives that you could be looking to f- fulfill with that higher defense spending. On one side, you have Macron, who's saying that we should be um, arming up. Um, and and building up our, our capabilities, defense and, e- and economic wise, to be more autonomous. And on the other, you have I would say the Baltic countries, the Central European countries, the Eastern European countries, who are saying yes, we need to beef up defense. Yes, we need to beef up strategically. But uh, at the end of the day, our role in the world is never going to be distant and different from uh, from 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 America's. We should we should always be uh, looking our, at our, um, our at our role in the world through. Uh, the transatlantic relationship and what we're able to achieve together. There's no, there's nothing that we are going to want to do strategically in an in an autonomous manner, uh, and I think that's the real difference there between Macron, maybe uh, 
and maybe some and, and maybe other um as i said like the baltics or or um or, or poland or or um or or, or the czech republic say no but- it's it's um just to bounce back on what you said i think the reason why strategic autonomy was never taken seriously in europe now it is to a large extent is that the there was this kind of vision within European capitals in the EU that Europe was ahead in kind of cycle of history and cycle of history which would be dominated by trade and regulation and and human rights and and if if that's your vision um, you don't really need to be strategically autonomous to that extent because you're you're ahead of a curve and strategic autonomous brings back to kind of old principles of hard power, which were a bit outdated to some extent. You know, the, um, the European was was a, a vegetarian, it was a, in the world of carnivores, but it was a proud vegetarian in the world of carnivores. It, think, it was thinking that all the other carnivores will become vegetarians in, in the near future. Um, so that's why, to some extent, you've had this. And I think you've had, especially in German Germany, there's been this kind of uncomfortable notion of strategic autonomy. Um, you know, if you look at what um, German Defense Minister Annegret Kramp-Kambauer says, um, yes, it seems like Macron and her um, have a major disagreement. Um, they both agreed to some extent that they should be having um, increased defense spending. Um, they agree that um, there should be a stronger um, common EU defense. Nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, the SPAT has made Annegret Kramp-Kambauer very popular in Germany. And which is which is interesting because historically, if there is one, you know, German defense ministers are very unpopular, which is very strange for most countries. But usually, the defense minister is a, is a very popular guy because you know he's in charge of the army, and the army tends to be pretty popular in countries. Um, Germany, that's not the case. You know, the defense minister. If you look, for example, at Ursula von der, von der Leyen, uh, the head of the Commission, she used to be um, defense minister, and she was very unpopular. Um, and this has made her pretty popular over the last few days. Uh, because you know you, you could argue that maybe this is AKK who is um, making you know uh, talking to domestic audience and trying to become more popular and whatnot. But if those comments are popular, it says something about the German psyche around these issues. It says that the German are still uncomfortable with the idea that they could provide for um, you know the Europeans could provide for their own defense. And when when Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer uh, attacks the anti-Americanism. That goes around with some people who are pushing strategic autonomy. Um, you know, it's because it's because of the German mindsets. Um, you could see how strategic autonomy could um, could echo some pretty uh, uh, distasteful historical political um, tendencies. You know, so you can see the, the kind of ghost um, ghost behind German German strategic thinking. Um, now. You talk about other countries, not just Germany, and I think that's true. I think too. The other day we saw the um, uh, Spanish defense minister say that he was closer to what um, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer was saying than, than France. If I can just interject, which was a huge victory uh, for um, for Germany to have a southern a Mediterranean southern country. Uh, and I, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I don't want to sell uh, the guy too short. Uh, I don't really think that <laughs> this debate is being widely covered, widely enough covered in Spain for uh, this to make much sense. What would uh, I believe it was Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez who who said this, but uh, it was a huge victory for Germany to have a 
Yes, it's Pedro Sanchez. Yes. To have a Mediterranean country. And, and I remember uh, someone in, in our network was tweeting, well, this is really bad news for Macron because if he, if he cannot get the, the Spaniards and the Italians and the Greeks on board with his vision as a Mediterranean nation, as a Mediterranean nation that France is, then Macron's in real trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And and I forgot, I think, I think it was um, ECFR maybe, um, which wrote the other day, is Macron talking about strategic autonomy on his own? Um, and... You know, this debate has evolved massively, as we've said in the past few minutes. Um, and it, at least there's a debate about it that wouldn't have been 10, 15 years ago. But to a large extent, people are not, are not comfortable with this idea yet. You know, they agree that maybe we should have, you know, a stronger defense. Maybe we should have a, uh, we should beef up our common uh, European defenses. Um, but to countries like Germany, um, what they understand as strategic autonomy is being comfortable with being complementary but remaining second fiddles to the Americans. I think the French vision is one day, progressively, a strategic autonomous Europe would be as mighty as the United States um, and not simply complementary. And I think, I think that's where the visions diverge. They, they, they agree right now that we should do more, but they don't agree what the landing zone will be. And that's, and that's, um, that's a big issue because... Um, um, because we've had this debate since the 1960s, um, when when de Gaulle would want uh, uh, Europe Europe to be European, um, the Germans made sure that they wouldn't steer way too too far away from Americans. Um, it's a it's an old debate, and um, it says a lot about the state about Europe, of European politics. And I, I want to I really want to ask you, Francois, because you've been tracking this closely, you've been following what these ministers and prime ministers have been telling the media and et cetera, and how this whole debate is shaping up. And I wanted to ask you uh, precisely where you think that Akaka's position comes from and where Macron's position comes from. Before that, I, I wanted to do one quick um, I want to make one quick observation. I thought it was so important right right back at the start when you um, uh, uh, nuanced that when we talk about strategic autonomy, that this isn't just uh, a matter of what specific policy issue we're discussing. And of course, there's a difference between uh, the uh, strategic and defense um, bucket, right? Uh, that essentially means spending more on defense or spending more and smarter on defense and being having a smarter way of deploying troops that, that deters Russia. Um, uh, and and on the other hand, we've got the economic sphere, right? Um, and that means uh, that can mean a, a set of different things, but largely uh, being a strategic competitor to China and and not um, and not kind of you know be uh, accommodative of China as the Germans want to. Say. And, and and to the US as well. Don't forget all the right exactly the, on GAFAM and and on um, the extrajudicial power of uh, U.S. courts and, and so on. Exactly. exactly. And I, in fact, I, I, that's, that's precisely what I, what I wanted to get into. But, but just to parse those two areas out, the, the strategic and defense on one hand and the, the, the economics on the other. But you said another really important thing at the start, which is that it isn't just about policy areas. It's, all, it's, it's also about institutions. Um, because each each of the EU institutions has holds a different view of what strategic autonomy means, and as you said at the start, the European Commission, for instance, is very dug into this um, largely economic view of strategic autonomy. Obviously, the Commission handles antitrust, uh, right? Antitrust at the European antitrust is, as we should explain our audience for to just to. to to give them enough background has been entirely delegated, mostly delegated, or at least in terms of the single market, the companies that operate across your, across internal borders 
the extent to which they're allowed to merge and to concentrate is regulated by the European Commission, which has uh, a department. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it essentially handles antitrust. It was uh, formerly held by Margaret Vestager, who was like the horror of the GAFAs and the, the big uh, American multinationals because she was really tough. Um, but uh, as you said at the start, I thought it was so important to, to nuance that if you ask commission officials, they would mostly emphasize green protectionism, a green taxes. So the idea, um, for instance, uh, and, and I think this was this was actually a provision that was pegged onto the budget deal that we're now discussing that is now being held up uh, by Hungary and Poland. But it, it's, it was uh, added uh, with everyone's support, I believe, uh, the idea of creating what the commission calls our own resources. And it's so important, this notion of own resources, which is a financial notion, is the, the, the idea that the EU can levy its own taxes, because let's remind our audience, the EU does not levy taxes. It, it essentially just has money transferred from national treasuries uh, until the day when it will, I, I think it already levies a couple of taxes on like plastic waste and whatnot. But the, the EU budget deal that is uh, in the works right now will substantially beef that up. And there will be more taxes that you will be able to levy. And there's also obviously the proposal for a carbon adjustment tax, which is the idea that in the EU, we already have a carbon a carbon um, mechanism. So the idea that the commission distributes uh, emit emission permits to um, European companies, and then they get to trade those off. And that's just a mechanism to gradually year on year reduce uh, overall emissions by having the market essentially allocate where these emissions are most efficiently uh, you know, allocated. But uh, now, increasingly, there's also the idea, and this really goes to what you were explaining at the start, Francois, the idea of green protectionism. That's exactly what it is, is the idea that uh, we, the Europeans, are taking up a lot of the burden for reducing emissions, but it, it isn't fair if we're having these other great powers, like kind of the United States, that are not as serious about reducing emissions, sell their products into our market, which have been produced at a lower cost, because obviously the, the environmental regulations are lower, but they're able to sell these products, which cost less. So the, the, that's an unfair competition. So the proposal now that I think I forget at what stage of the negotiations this is on, but I don't think it's in the budget. Um, now they want to have a carbon a bo um, a border, a carbon border adjustment tax. I think it's the long, which is essentially that you get to charge a tariff on products that come into the European market on the basis of how much carbon has been emitted in producing them. And that's, that is a clear uh, definite, uh, it's a clear example of what you, what at the start you called green protectionism. And that's the view of the European Commission. But then different, um, as you said, you know, um, different institutions in different countries will have different views. Uh, but I really wanted to ask you the, uh, this about both Akaka and Macron, because you explained at the start, you know, Akaka, right, she's um, carved out this reputation for herself, which is a heck of an achievement when you're a defense minister in a country like Germany. Because in a country like, let's not remember, Germany is one of the most defense-averse uh, countries in, in Europe. The uh, Bundestag, uh, essentially, one of the, I would, even I would want to, I'm, I'm pretty hawkish, but even I would want to cut some slack to the Germans, uh, to the German politicians, because it's very hard for them to pass a budget that has increased defense spending. Because obviously the Greens are, are a huge party in Germany, even the SPD is very kind of pacifist and whatnot. Um, so it's very hard for them to, to, to pass a budget that increases defense spending. So that's where the pro problem kind of starts. And my question to you is, you know, we've got Akaka who has come out in public having this very Atlanticist, as she calls it. I would disagree with that characterization, but she calls it Atlanticism, the idea that we shouldn't be 
autonomous, that our strategic role is embedded within the transatlantic relationship and our goals are America's goals, essentially. So my question is, what are, where does that come from? Do you think that Akaka is essentially thinking, well, you know, we're never going to be able to um, shove through higher defense spending uh, to, 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 uh, to shove it down the throats of the German public. And so this whole debate of strategic autonomy is going to cost us in the long term because Macron is essentially um, uh, playing the German public against the German government uh, and making the German government uh, more unpopular because now they have to. They have. He, he's to. doing something even um, tactically smarter, which is yeah. in his interview with Grand Continent, he says, um, I disagree with what AKK has said. But according to what I have understood, the Chancellor Angela Merkel is not on her line. Mm. Um, was, so wait, so it, it's, it, he's putting pressure on Merkel to 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 um, go in his you know, approve his his vision and disapprove he, hers. That's so enfant terrible. That's fantastic. I love that he's you know that he's messing around with, with the German cabinet, but didn't he, let's, um, let's have you explain to our, to our audience, because I think that a few days before he said that, he had also cut a lot of flack, Macron, for calling Akaka naive or something along those lines. And that got picked up by Der Spiegel or, or one of the major papers. And then, you know, and that, and that, that whole spat kind of grew out of, of that. Um, but um, j- just to go back to my question my, is, why do you think that Akaka specifically um, has picked up this crusade, um, acting as a sort of the voice against strategic autonomy? Um, and then on the and then on the other hand, uh, uh, and then uh, on the other hand is is what about Macron? Do you think that he um, is this is this the is this like a larger ball game that he's playing where he wants to like isolate Germany and maybe get some uh, support from other? No, no, no. So, but, 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 so on the AKK question. First of all, she she was very unpopular a few months ago, so this was a, a good way to put herself on the map again, and she's become very popular. And uh, all of a sudden, people are starting to think she could become um, leader of the CDU again. No, oh, okay. um, that, that might be a long shot. But um, I have to caveat the disagreement because um, both AKK and Macron share the idea that there should be more defense spending and there should be a stronger common EU. Defense policy. Um, they just don't really agree what they would do with that strong in defense and that stronger. Um, so, you know, again, as I've said, Macron wants uh, strategic autonomy to uh, end up you know, to be a form of European sovereignty, properly speaking of. And, and AKK is comfortable with the idea that um, strategic autonomy simply means being complementary with the United States. Um, so, there's this disagreement. Um, on on Macron's side, on Macron's side, I think there was a there was a piece the other day in Politico calling Macron the think tanker in chief. Yes, that was um, uh, that was Rem Rem Mortaz, was wasn't she? Yeah, and she, I thought it was very funny. Yeah, that's. I'd love for you to walk us through, and you've you've already said a lot about kind of the tradition, the Gaullist tradition of, of French statesmen um, banging on about um, sovereignty, and now we've got that being transferred from the French to the European stage. But um, yeah, tell us more about like what is Macron thinking? What's what's the longer game here? Well, 
I think um, a bit of the idea behind uh, the political piece was that um, Macron kind of bounces ideas around, you know, like like a think tanker. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he he he. We had Benjamin Haddad with us, and a few few. Um, I think it was last year he wrote something called uh, Macron's strategy disruption. And um, you know he likes changing things, you know, in and he has an idea f- of what Europe should be, and sometimes saying what Europe should be can end up making your job much more complicated because there's a principle of reality as well, which is, well, maybe in an ideal world, Europe should be this way and this way and this way. But, you know, you have to make do with the realities on the ground. Um, so so I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure because it seems to me that like, this strategy is uh, antagonistic. Um, it, makes very, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and uh, it's a bit rash to some extent. So... It's 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 a bit of a Macron style of of you know saying that the the old system is ossified and needs a shakeup. Um, but actually, say, saying it needs a shakeup make might make that shakeup more complicated. So so I don't I don't know exactly. I, he he might be very genuine. I have disrupt disruption might help him. You know, if he thinks he's going to do a second term, he could put these ideas on a map for the future. Um, saying he was a visionary and had these ideas a long time ago and whatnot. So I'm not sure exactly, but um, I'm, I'm very happy we're having these conversations. I think intellectually it's fascinating, but I'm not sure if it's the president who should be starting these conversations in, in, in the first place. Um, so it's a bit of an odd situation. He's a think tank and a president. Yeah. And let's kind of walk through some of these, some of the, the rationales, but the rationales could, could be for, for Macron wanting to play the think tanker president's role, right? I mean, Obviously, as you, as I think you've explained uh, a couple of times on the show, Macron is a heck of a special character, right? He's obviously a lot of his career has been defined by just sheer ambition, and he's obviously a man full of ideas, and and um, he wants to affect a lot. I mean, he's already affected so much change on the French political sphere alone by realigning politics, and he had a really interesting piece in the National Interest. Um, earlier last week, and maybe we can get into it, but, um, um, he, he's, he's, he's a man of, of, he's, he, he talks a, a big game about, um, you know, reshuffling stuff and change. Right. Um, um, now my one supposition you could make is, is that maybe he's trying to, in a way, upset, if you, if you were really cynical, maybe you would maybe think that Macron is trying to upset, uh, the balance of power in, in EU council at the EU council and at the EU level, uh, he wants, in a way, to kind of make Germany seem stingy. Uh, you know, look at these Germans and look at Akaka, who are essentially on the side of fecklessness, right? There are cases, essentially, that we shouldn't be spending money because what are we going to do with a higher defense budget if, at the end of the day, we're, we should be relying on the Americans? And that, that It's kind of a, a hard case to make in a world that is becoming more unsafe by the day. And maybe that there's a longer uh, strategic game there where Macron is trying to, like, uh, beef up France, France's role in Europe by um, getting people to rally around his vision. And that includes, obviously, people within Mediterranean countries. And obviously, the Pedro Sanchez comment was a, a big setback for Macron. But maybe he's, he's got a longer game going where he wants to isolate Germany on this debate. Um, that would be one rational. And then the other rational, and I think you can you can be very useful to our audience by by walking us through uh, this the idea of this economic war with the United States and what the 
uh, what it's looked like in terms of like companies that have been subjected to extra extraterritorial uh, judicial authority by the, Dep the U.S. Department of Justice and whatnot. And maybe you can walk us through some of those cases. But uh, another uh, aspect of this could be, you know, economic um, economic autonomy and not only in terms of uh, antitrust, I mean, which is a huge case. And as we said, that's one of the areas where we already have a lot of strategic autonomy. I mean, uh, the European Commission has de facto huge power over American tech companies. Uh, it has um, it has made them cough up billions of dollars in fines. We saw that with uh, Google in, uh, I believe, Ireland. Google had a major court case in Ireland, but also with Facebook and uh, some of the tech, uh, some of those social media platforms that have had cases with the commission. Um, so maybe you have a case there about like, okay, uh, the EU is essentially um, an association of states. It doesn't have a lot of uh, financial resources because it relies, it has a budget that is peanuts, really. It's like 1% of the EU's GDP. States are very stingy in how much money they want to give to the EU. Uh, but the EU should leverage the internal market, the sheer power of the internal market to affect, uh, to wield power in terms of, um, and, and we've discussed this. I mean, remember the Brussels effect. Um, Anu Bradford, who was a legal scholar at Columbia, she's a Finnish-American lawyer. She came out with, uh, with this book uh, earlier um, last summer called The Brussels Effect. And what she means by that is essentially the regulatory power of the European Union. So the idea that even though the EU is not a strong state because it doesn't have a large budget, it relies on a huge single market. And the ability of the European Commission as a legal entity to uh, penalize companies when they don't abide by our, the rules of our enormous market is huge. There's a huge power there, and we've seen it with big tech. And green protectionism, protectionism as well, because if all of a sudden you need to, to, to lower your, your carbon emissions to enter the EU market without being sanctioned by too high a tariff, then it changes behavior. Exactly. And, what, and, that, and one last aspect that I could uh, hypothesize Macron also has in mind is the idea that he also wants to play a huge role on this sort of the diplomatic um, scene worldwide. We've seen him. He was, um, I mean, uh, before him, it was François Hollande, but the French president has played a huge role, both him, both him and uh, François Hollande, in brokering the Iran agreement, uh, right? The French have always been very um, uh, in favor of uh, talking to the Iranians, talking them into reducing their nuclear capabilities. Um, and then also on the climate deal, I mean, the Paris Accord was a huge victory for for France on the world stage. It was it was signed in Paris. Uh, it was a huge reputational boost for France, uh, and it, and France was also very involved in getting all of these countries together to agree on a meager uh, on an albeit meager uh, agreement. So among those several few things, maybe you can think of more. But wh which ones do you think weigh more heavily in Macron's mind? Um, he, he's, he essentially cares about all of them, of course, but um, where do you think he stands? Well, I think you can't exclude there's also domestic reasons. Um, first of all, as I've said, his contract to the French um, people in 2017 is, if you vote for me, I'll make France more European, but then I'll make Europe more French. Um, and he needs to at least give the impression he is pushing that. Um, so that's, that's a strong aspect of it. And I think the French also like the idea of having a French president that is a important international actor. If you like, if you look in the polls, usually one of the aspects on which Macron is strongest is on the idea that he represents France internationally well. Um, 
in every poll, people agree that, at least internationally, he gives a good image of France, um, whether they agree with his domestic policies or not. Um, so when he ends up in Lebanon, when he ends up you know, talking this big swashbuckling um, agenda, um, it makes the French people proud, and, and, and the French people want a president who's able of talking to the world. It, it's, it's for their self-image and understanding who they are. I think it's important. Um, so there's this aspect which can't be excluded. Um, and again, I think we go back to the idea that two French thinkers, the EU could be a, um, a lever for French influence. Um, so that's why he's putting. Um, he he wants to shake things up, and 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 make people realize that uh, the EU could be the springboard for larger ambitions, not just for France but for other countries. Um, so I think that, that's what. But maybe the strategy is wrong. You know, maybe maybe, or maybe the tactics to get to that kind of broader strategy are wrong. Maybe he's antagonizing too many people, and all that. So you can't you can't fully exclude that. But again, you no. Know, just like we said, AKK might have a few domestic reasons to um, exaggerate her her conflict with Macron. I think Macron also has some reasons to to exaggerate it. You know, he wants to show to the French he's shaking things up and he's he's trying to make Europe more French. And and I wanted to I wanted to ask you, Francois, specifically about one issue that we've left out of the uh, out of the wheelhouse here, which is China. Um, you know, because I, I wanted to ask you about how the issue of China has played out in France post COVID, how it was playing out before COVID. Uh, and specifically how it, you can compare it uh, with uh, Germany. I mean, uh, you may remember back a few weeks ago when we had John Kampfner, we discussed at length how uh, Germany has traditionally had a very accommodative role towards China since um, uh, since reunification, uh, you know, never been very much of, um, a, you know, tough talk against China uh, from the Germans, uh, much of which was due, as Kampfner explained, to um, corporate capture of foreign policy. Essentially, you had the huge business lobby in, in Germany uh, that although they have uh, warmed, uh, although they have, um, they are now increasingly waking up to the Chinese threat. There was that report that you quoted where they, they labeled China as a strategic threat. But traditionally, um, German corporate interests, the big car making companies, the big German multinationals who see still see China as a huge market and a market full of opportunities are perhaps among the... Um, uh, the friendliest to, to the Chinese government. They, they don't want a tough policy on China because they want to keep access to the Chinese market. Uh, and this week we had uh, Xi Jinping, who was very aware of these dynamics. <laughs> he's, probably, he's probably the smartest man in China, but um, he, he's been playing, he, he wants to play out, I think Politi Politico was reporting along these lines, Xi Jinping has been trying to play out the Europeans against one another. He's called up, uh, Merkel saying, you know, listen, it's not in Europe's interest to go down um, the road of a strategic conflict, uh, a Europe-China strategic conflict, because we have so much in common. We have these mutual interests. You sell so much of your stuff to our people and vice versa. And we provide a lot of uh, stuff to you. We've been very helpful with COVID relief, etc. Um, but um, that was, those were kind of some of the headlines of the conversation. And right there, Xi Jinping was trying to... Um, to uh, um, um, you know appease Germany and and get them to kind of stay in line and not act too tough. But um, um, I, I wonder, and and we also saw the role of German diplomats, EU diplomats of German nationality in 
um, appeasing a uh, disinformation report that was going to come out a few weeks, a few months ago about COVID, etc. People can go back to our episode with John Kampner if they're interested in it. It's a fascinating conversation. But I wanted to ask you how China has been playing out in France. Uh, is there any appetite for greater toughness against China uh, on the part of Macron, on the part of his party, on the part of the French public as a whole? Right. So I think France, the debate on China has been less important than in Germany and the UK and especially the United States. Now, that said, um, the idea that we should be sovereign is an idea that rings to the French a lot more maybe than, 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 in, than in Germany. And very early on, um, France uh, decided to create regulatory hurdles to make sure that um, Huawei, for example, wouldn't be setting up a 5G network in, in France. Um, so quite quite early on, there was there was um, a realization that letting Huawei uh, build um, part of a 5G network was a risk to the sovereignty of France. But it wasn't that big of a big conversation because there's always been this conversa- this idea that the French state should be able to protect uh, its economic sovereignty. So um, it wasn't it wasn't squarely about China. Uh, in that sense, that said, there's a, a realization of you know China's record on human rights, um, its um, its its uh, behavior on intellectual property, uh, and so on. So there's there's no there's no naivete in France about 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 these issues. It just hasn't been as much of an existential issue as it has been in the United States, for example, or even in the UK and Germany, where the Huawei debate was was. Um, was very important um, because you know when when France talks about strategic autonomy, yes, of course it thinks about China, which is kind of obvious, but it is also concerned about the United States. And, and you know, as I said, the past few years we saw some pretty hefty fines on on French company, on Société Générale, and and whatnot uh, because um, uh, because of um, very um, how could I say you know, the extrajudicial and extraterritorial nature of um, of U.S. law, for example, you know whenever French company uses a dollar uses dollars, or whenever a French company has a Gmail account, um, they are liable to American law. Um, so uh, you know that has some pretty 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 massive consequences. So when we talk about strict autonomy, yes, we have China in mind, but we are focused a little more about the United States than we are on China, because um, uh, because the French have a bit of um, a bit of a tradition, of course, with um, with America and, and American influence in France. Just one thing. This is not to say, obviously, that that uh, America's behavior is is more extreme than Chinese behavior. It's just that other countries will never talk about about um, you know, uh, America's extrajudicial, extraterritorial laws, and they'll focus mainly on China, while France will end up focusing on both. Yeah, and that's that's also interesting because it's um, it kind of um, um, uh, it, it also points towards another uh, issue where this plays out, which is in the defense space. Uh, Macron himself um, and, and France generally has been very warm to um, uh, to greater uh, European defense co- cooperation. So not only member states spending more on their national defense and their national armies, which can then get redeployed through NATO, but also spending on defense cooperation mechanisms that the EU has set up, mostly the, the EDF, the European Defense Fund and PESCO. And the Americans hate that. Uh, excuse me. 
Um, the Americans hate that because they see that as a European protectionism. So they would much rather have European nation states individually contract with American military contractors to buy all these, uh, you know, uh, uh, end of, uh, you know, uh, uh, state of the art military equipment and whatnot, rather than spend money among themselves in a way that due to European commission rules and whatnot is always going to benefit uh, European companies more so than American companies. But it's, it's interesting there. And, and, Maybe uh, another day we should dedicate a whole episode to the what you've just described there, there in terms of what the French call the, the economic war between French and France and the United States. But it, it would be an interesting topic to touch on because um, people oftentimes would um, underestimate the extent to which, uh, for one thing, you know, uh, American law has this extra territorial uh, breadth of, of application and the specific cases in recent history where that has um um, hurt uh, certain French companies and why that is um, bred a certain skepticism towards America. Um, but anyway, I think I think we've covered so much ground, and I I'm, I'm so happy we were able to do this episode because this whole debate. Let's just be very clear. I mean, right at the very start, you uh, you you hinted that um, the very re the, the reason that we're having this conversation is because of Donald Trump and his rhetoric around, you know, you're, you Europeans should pay up, you, you should stop free riding on America, and you should stop uh, expecting America to help you with your foreign policy goals, such as reducing climate emissions, uh, helping Iran get away with nuclear weapons or whatever. But um, one of the things we should make very clear is that regardless of who sits on the White House, this is a debate that's not going to go away. Uh, you're always going to have people like Macron who, regardless uh, even if we have a Democrat in the White House who's probably going to take some of some of the foot off the pedal on defense issues and probably be less confrontational with Europe, we're always going to have leaders like Macron who say, listen, folks, um, this can no no longer go on as usual and we need to take our own security in our own hands. So we're going to have we're going to keep hearing about this debate. And I, I was so happy that we were able to give our audience maybe just a basic kind of rundown of where the arguments lie and what the uh, situation is. Um, and uh, in terms of the Akakama, Konspad, et cetera. Um, but for now, uh, let us thank uh, our audience again once more for tuning in, for, for bearing with us. And uh, we hope to, uh, to uh, have you on another episode. Thank you so much. Also, don't forget to send us your questions. All you have to do is to write a review in Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or whatever podcast platform you use. Send us that picture to our Twitter, at UndecencyPod, or to our email, UndecencyPod at Gmail, with your question attached, and we will answer it in a future episode. Keep the reviews coming, and see you next week. See you next week.